This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest in this half hour is Kelly Dittmar, a returning guest to Women at Work. She's an assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University Camden and a scholar at the Extraordinary Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics. She's the co-author of A Seat at the Table, Congresswomen's Perspectives on Why Their Representation Matters, and author of Navigating Gender terrain, stereotypes and strategy in political campaigns. Kelly, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So for listeners who have just tuned in or who aren't aware of your work, tell us what the Center for American Women in Politics does. Absolutely. So the Center for American Women in Politics is nearing its 50th anniversary. Um, And we were founded with the really intention of expanding uh, women's political participation. Um, And we do that in a couple of ways. One is we simply keep track of the numbers of women who are running for office and who also serve in office. That gives us a sense of where the problem areas are, what we need to do to get closer to political parity. So we've been collecting that data, again, for close to 50 years across different levels of office and really are sort of a go-to source for news media, scholars, and others to get a sense of women's representation. Um, and then we do um, programs um, and research that's, that are both informed by uh, those numbers and also our engagement with women in politics across this country. And so uh, we do research here with myself and other scholars on staff who look at why the numbers are so low and what we might do about it, um, as well as what impact women have in office. So you referenced the book we, we published last fall on the importance of women in Congress. Those are the types of research we do to make the case uh, for uh, increasing women's representation. And then our programmatic work is really focused on how do we make the path to both candidacy and just overall political engagement a little bit easier for women. And so we run a program specifically called Ready to Run, and there's a national network of ready-to-run programs and partners that run these programs in in various states, 20-plus states, um, that are day-long or sometimes two-day-long campaign trainings uh, for women who are interested in running or even the folks who might be supporting a candidacy or working on a campaign. And importantly, you're politically neutral, correct? That's right. We're a nonpartisan research-based center. Um, And so we do a lot of work looking at how we get those numbers increased on both sides of the aisle because we know that getting to parity, if we want to get to 50% of women in politics, it's going to take increasing representation on both sides of the aisle. So what are you guys working on now, especially at this point in the election cycle? So we're in the midst of, you know, collecting the data on women who will be running in uh, 2020. We've launched uh, two sort of aspects of both our website and sort of the analytical piece of what we do throughout any election, which is called uh, election Watch. Um, it's a page on our site that tracks uh, the women who've made a sort of public intention to run, and it gives you a sense of how this compares to previous cycles and also where these women are running. So if somebody wanted to know who's running in my state, they could look at it state by state, and we link to their candidate websites. Um, we also 
have a page called Presidential Watch, which is more particular, obviously, to the women running for president. We're very excited <laughs> to have a group of women this time around. <laughs> so we have more of a page than ever before. Um, and then related to that, we'll be posting sort of real-time analyses, so longer pieces, you know, that are sort of blog posts writing about the dynamics, the gender dynamics that are at play in this election. Um, and then lastly, you know, we're still reflecting on 2018. Uh, so we're doing an actual sort of report analysis of what happened in 2018, but really tying it to what does that tell us about what we should be watching for in 2020? It's really an amazing array of projects and so powerful. Um, particularly appreciate that you are really a reliable source for statistics because you noted before that the media often comes to you for those numbers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, even in, especially in 2018, when there were record numbers of women, the only way you could say that there were these record numbers, uh, we're going to somebody who had been collecting this uh, for a long time. Uh, in 2018, we saw a lot of media coverage about women running for office. But unfortunately, it was kind of the first year that we saw such heightened level of attention to women's candidacies in any uh, uh, national election. And so for some media outlets, it was the first time that they were coming to us. But for many others, they had always known, thankfully, that we're here and that we have sort of reliable data going backwards and also really breaking it down, right? So you need data by party. You want to look at race um, and the racial and ethnic diversity of the women who are running, the states in which they are running. You know, it's more than just those aggregate numbers. And, and we are, you know, proud to have, have kept those for quite a while. So when you are talking about the women who are running, um, particularly in the presidential race right now, was there anything in your data that suggested that we'd land here with such an enormous slate of candidates and the gender and um, the level of diversity that's amongst them? I mean, it's always hard to predict. Um, and when we looked at what happened in the last presidential election, we knew that coming out of that election, there was really heightened energy, enthusiasm, and engagement among women in politics, broadly speaking. In other words, we saw heightened engagement of women in activism. Uh, so, so going out and protesting or creating indivisible groups there was heightened level of engagement among women as donors. The Center for Responsive Politics has really good data on that. Um, heightened level of voter engagement. Women always outvote men, but they did so again in 2018. Ah, okay. um, and so for us, and, and again, this is especially true of Democratic women. I want to obviously caveat that there was a real, that activism and a lot of that energy was really happening on the left after the 2016 election, which makes sense because it was in response to, right, a loss from their party. Um, all of that predicted, you know, that we would perhaps see a, even more, again, engagement and motivation for women to run in 2020, both at the congressional level and at the presidential level, because they may have also seen the success of women candidates who ran in 2018, and again, that enthusiasm from women voters, donors, and activists. Um, but certainly we couldn't have told you that six women would have run. <laughs> um, and, and I think the questions around racial and ethnic diversity are really important ones because we, you know, Shirley Chisholm um, ran in 1972 for president. Mm -hmm. She was the first woman to win delegate votes at a Democratic presidential convention. She was breaking, right, that ceiling, or at least putting some cracks in that ceiling well before Hillary Clinton was. But 
in telling the history of women running for president, unfortunately, we often focus only on Hillary Clinton. And I think what this cycle hopefully allows us to do is remember that this has been a longer history mm-hmm. um, of women who've really tried to chip away at some of the expectations of executive office and led the way to getting to this point where you'd have six women who'd take the stage at a Democratic debate. And also that Shirley Chisholm wasn't just the first woman. She was also the first African-American candidate. Absolutely. Uh, to, you know, the unhappiness of, of a lot of black men um, and, in fact, white women. Right. Um, so she really confronted a lot of backlash from both within her gender and within um, her race in terms of folks who thought that it wasn't her turn. Um, but, you know, she famously said it was right. Mm-hmm. Somebody had to do it first. And so I think crediting those women, and it's Elizabeth Soule and Margaret Chase Smith, other women who did put their names forward as presidential candidates, even when they were not taken seriously at all, um, helped us to get to this point. And, and Geraldine Ferraro. Geraldine Ferraro as a, as a running mate, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, one thing you could have seen from 2016, you could certainly have had the hypothesis that, Women watched Hillary Clinton as one of the or the most qualified candidate for president um, be defeated and say, well, man, I'm definitely not putting myself forward and through that. Right. Um, Or they could have responded by saying, like, wow, this really points out the disparities and the, the disadvantages that often face women. Of course, she didn't only lose because of her gender, but certainly we saw gendered aspects of that candidacy. Um, what we seem to see in the congressional races in, in 2018 was the latter, you know, a sort of motivating force, not necessarily tied directly to Hillary Clinton, but certainly that her candidacy and her defeat didn't, didn't significantly depress the number of women willing to run. And, and I think that seems to also be true at the presidential level. These women did not seem to be deterred um, by her defeat in 2016. So whether or not we can, um, in a really scholarly way, attribute the growth in female candidacy to Hillary, we can at least say it didn't interrupt it. I think that's pretty fair. I mean, I will say one thing we never know, and we just, it's really hard to know. There is a little bit of research um, by my colleagues Chris Bono and, uh, I mean, Chris, yeah, Chris Bono and Chris Chantek on this about like the Hillary effect among general, sort of the general population. Do they seem to be sort of discouraged or encouraged by her candidacy? And it does show some folks that were discouraged. Um, the problem is when we're thinking about who's running, we never have a sense of the people who made the decision not to run. <laughs> right. you know, that's not data we collect. Um, so I think there is the potential that her candidacy might have discouraged some women. Um, and I don't want to discount that, but certainly not to the point where it led to a drop in numbers, because obviously what we saw was an increase in the number of women, ultimately, that we netted um, as candidates for office. So you were giving us some statistics as you were describing some of the patterns that you saw in the last election. Um, I want to dive into them because I think if we look at them superficially, it doesn't make sense with the outcome. Um, But we have to dive into what it tells us about the stereotypes and um, uh, patterns that we saw amongst voters, because if women 
Voter engagement is high for women. They outvote men, and especially for the Democrats. We wouldn't think we would have had the results from the 2016 election that we did. So what were – and I know we've talked about this on previous shows, but I'd like to bring it into – to mention it at least today as we think about the election that's coming and the kind of discourse that's happening in the news media. What are the stereotypes and patterns that you see amongst voters as it relates to women candidates and candidates who – candidates of color and from underrepresented groups. Sure. Um, so, you know, that's a host of literature, but <laughs> to summarize some of the stuff, first of all, one important point about, you know, when you're talking about women outvoting men and how that may have factored in 2016. Remember, um, as we all, I think, have been educated on since the 2016 election, it was something we sort of reiterated at our center over and over again, that women voters are also not monolithic in who they vote for. In other words, women don't vote for women. Mm-hmm. That's not um, uh, necessarily true. Partisanship really trumps that. And so um, what we saw among particularly uh, white, non-college-educated women voting in high numbers for Donald Trump was consistent with what they had done in previous elections. In fact, we saw a shift among college-educated white women who had previously voted Republican but did, in fact, support Hillary Clinton in the last election, um, but it wasn't enough to change that demographic overall of white women uh, voting Republican. And so that's just a really important reminder as we sort of evaluate how women voters behave it's very different across racial and ethnic groups and also by education. So black women um, are the most reliable Democratic voters. They vote at the highest rates. They vote um, in the greatest numbers. Um, and so if the Democratic Party is smart, right, they're going to be listening to black women going into this election, also increasingly Latinas as a proportion of the electorate. So those are really important things on the voter side. On the stereotypes that affect candidates, um, This is also changing. Um, We've seen research that shows that there are fewer and fewer sort of negative stereotypes that affect women. Questions around things historically have been, you know, are they strong and tough enough? Um, Do they have the executive credentials um, that folks see as important, especially for presidential office? So in addition to, like, that toughness factor, are they seen as experts on national security or defense? These are areas where women have struggled. Um, And while we're seeing some closing of the gender gap on some of those trait and issue stereotypes, we still see evidence um, that voters evaluate men and women differently. Um, One of the studies I I often cite um, my colleague Tessa Dutanto did, it's really smart sort of experimental evaluation of how people um, look at and evaluate men and women candidates. And she finds that when given these hypothetical candidates, people seek out a lot more information about women's competency, right, their qualifications um, to be an office holder than they do men. So there's an assumption there that um, people look at a woman and say she can't be qualified, prove it to me, as opposed to a man. Yeah. And what we find for women candidates is that they're able to prove it, right? So this is why you find the, the finding overall that when women run, they win at equal rates as men. So sure, but does it take more work for them to get there? And does, is some of that work overcoming these stereotypical hurdles? I, I would say, based on the literature and based on the work I've done, absolutely, that's part of the difference. Um, and I think we're seeing that at the presidential level. Just imagine um, that somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who's putting out however many policies per day, um, Part of that is her personality, but part of that is also women who have been um, conditioned 
to know that they have to back up whatever they're saying with additional statistics and information and credentials Mm -hmm. because that expertise is not assumed for them in the way that it is for men. Look, we we know this from your research, and we've heard it. Like Sandra Day O'Connor famously said she had to work three times as hard and be three times as good in order to get where she was. And Michelle Obama was really eloquent about talking about the pressure that they face to be impeccable all the time. My my colleague, uh, Sarah Fulton, has done also really great work showing that even when women win at the same rates as men, and she's looking for... Uh, particularly at congressional races, that women on average are higher quality candidates. So she's looking at things like previous political experience, you know, that sort of stuff to demonstrate that they're just better, right? So they are, in fact, better candidates. Um, And so if we say, well, they win at equal rates, and don't account for that quality or what she calls, I think, uh, uh, a premium, right, on Mm -hmm. on their uh, credentials, um, then we're missing out on part of the story um, because that is, in fact, a challenge that women, yes, effectively overcome, but it still seems to be there. That's a really interesting point. So it's not that people with the same level of preparation are winning at the same rate. It's that women and men are winning at the same rate, but the women who are running are far more prepared than the men. And that seems to be what's closing that gap. Yeah, By the way, for, if you're just tuning in, this is Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Kelly Dittmar. She's a scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics and one of the, our most trusted sources for understanding the political world that we live in here at Women at Work. If you want to ask how you can get involved, if you want to learn, understand any of this more deeply, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at one eight four four wharton That's 844-942-7866. So, Kelly, one of the things that I was reading on the website was not just about who's getting elected, elected, but the track record of effectiveness of the women who have been elected to office and are now serving. What can you tell us about how are they doing? Yeah, I mean, it depends. obviously folks will have a measure of effectiveness that, uh, you know, varies. So there's, there's some research um, definitely in political science that shows greater effectiveness for women in things like getting money back to their districts. Um, or getting certain policies passed. Um, and so there's a host of studies that show this greater level of effectiveness for women. Um, I would tie that importantly to women's motivation to running. So one of the things we talk about in our book on women in Congress, which is really based on interviews, we did interviews with 83 of the women in the 114th Congress, um, which was the majority uh, uh, of those women who were serving. Um, and we asked them sort of about this, right, you know, sort of, Why did you come here? And also, what motivates you to work across party lines, which is something that the women often tout as different among them than their male counterparts? And they repeatedly talked about the fact that they were motivated to get into public office, particularly to get into Congress, because they wanted to get things done, right? So they were really focused on achievement over ego, and they felt, in contrast, that some of their male counterparts were more focused on the job, the title, or the ego, right, then on actually making policy change. And, and remember, it's, 
they also feel like it's harder for them to get to Congress. And so they're not going to do all the work to get there and then see nothing get done. So there's a real motivation, um, not that men also don't have the motivation to make policy change, um, but something that is, it seems to be distinct among the women, and it bears true in some of that uh, more quantitative evidence that's out there to say that they are doing the work and it's leading to results in policy changes or, or financial support for their district. So whether it's attributed to the fact that they're exceptionally qualified candidates coming in the door to right. their motivations right. or that they're continuing to work really hard to get things done because they know they're under a different level of scrutiny, it's yeah. actually probably all adding up to help them be more effective. All of those things. Um, uh, Jeff Lazarus uh, and Amy Steyer wrote a book um, with the title Gendered Vulnerability, and they talked to your latter point about, you know, also they know they're going to be under heightened scrutiny, so they're going to do this additional work, and they have uh, various measures of, you know, the extra work that women in Congress are doing to sort of not be vulnerable in the next election. So that's a really interesting take on um, why we might see women both be more effective, but also just sort of be, you know, working harder across constituent service, policy proposals, et cetera, um, in order to to maintain their, their position in Congress. I have to imagine that their own intersectionality would actually make this even that much more challenging. Um, have you gotten any meaningful research on these patterns as it relates to gay women or women of color? Yeah. So on, on some of those quantitative studies that I mentioned, they really don't break it down that way. Um, we were able to sort of look into that a little bit with a little more nuance uh, because we were doing interviews uh, with women of color in Congress. Um, And I think that, you know, certainly they see that same heightened level of skepticism, right, that they are qualified, that they should be there. Um, And so, again, sort of feeling like they have to go that additional uh, effort to prove themselves. They have some distinctions in Congress, and this is also true at the state legislative level, and there's sort of a good and, good and bad side of the statistic, which is that women of color uh, are more likely to represent majority-minority districts um, in which they have high levels of support, right? So that mm-hmm. electoral vulnerability, once they get in, can be potentially lower. But that, what that also indicates is that parties are not pushing to ensure that women of color are also representing majority white districts, which are the majority of districts nationwide still. Um, And so that's just, that's a bigger problem. So um, it it speaks to the fact that not only do we have to make sure that we're not um, sort of placing a higher burden on women of color once they're in to prove themselves, but also that we're recruiting and supporting women of color in all sorts of districts at the state legislative and congressional level, not just in places where folks deem them as electable because it's a majority Mm -hmm. um, minority electorate. I think this also speaks to the enormous pressure that's on candidates to run highly strategic campaigns. And we know that data and strategy go hand in hand. Is that something that the center is also building and helping these women get access to? Sure. I mean, in our campaign training work, um, that's where we're really bringing in strategic experts um, and practitioners 
to engage directly with women and talk to them about not only the nuts and bolts of running for office for any candidate, but also what are the distinct circumstances that you're going to confront as a woman and also specifically as a woman of color. So to give you a sense of that in New Jersey, so as I mentioned, we have these programs across the country. In New Jersey, our program has uh, our sort of main ready-to-run agenda in addition to separate tracks. Um, that happened the day prior to our, our uh, start of the full conference for black women, for Latinas, and for Asian American women. In other states where there's a higher population, for example, of Native American women, they may have a track specifically for those women. And the idea of those, that what we call diversity initiatives, is to be really honest with the women in the room in an off-the-record setting about how you do need to strategically um, navigate the terrain of a political campaign in your state or your district um, as a woman of color, as um, a black woman, you know, specifically. And so that gives women the sort of strategic insights and advice about how to even get started and how to be successful. So tell us, with the few minutes we have left, um, ready to run, who's eligible for it? Sure. Any, anybody is eligible. It is targeted to women, but we also have men who do come. Often those are men who um, are helping women run for office and want to get some insights about the different dynamics that affect women running for office. Um, also, uh, women who may not be, haven't made the decision to run, but are just considering it, all ages, um, you know, all sorts of qualifications um, of types of women who come, and some women come multiple times. And all parties. And all parties, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Everything we do is nonpartisan. And again, I think that's important because there are a number of training programs that really are targeted at Democratic women. There are fewer that are targeted at Republican women. And so we really try to create a space where our speakers are bipartisan um, and the information that we provide should be helpful to women of, of both major parties as well as women who might run as third party candidates. So Ready to Run is there to help potential candidates, current candidates, mm -hmm. the teams that are supporting them. And it's a nationwide program. Yep. Yep, we're in 20-plus states, and we partner with other sort of expert organizations, so whether it be another university-based uh, center um, or sometimes with uh, nonprofit organizations in the past. For example, we've partnered with groups like the AAUW, um, and so they, they put those programs together. And the key there is to be sure that we have folks who are experts on that state. Mm -hmm. We know that we don't know everything about the politics in your state, and so we want to craft a program that is helpful to candidates running where you are. As always, Kelly, I am riveted by all you have to share and grateful for all of the work that you're doing. If people want to learn more about the center, where can they find you? www.copcawp.ruckers.edu. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.